0: chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21 and verses 22 and following, if you are visiting with us or if you haven't been here in some time, we have been going through the gospel of John together moving chapter by chapter, verse by verse through it. But as of the last few weeks, we have taken a break from the Gospel of John for about uh, four to five weeks to look at what I believe is one of the most vital and often not discussed topics to the life of a local church, which is the subject of the purity of the church carried out in church membership and church discipline. Um, So again, these are subjects that for most generations, within the last few generations, have become completely lost. But in the history of the church, these things were vital and in fact marks of what actually made up a church. So we've been spending the last few weeks um, going through these subjects, and we'll look at it again this week and as well next week. So it's a little bit different this morning, we're not going to be working through a passage of scripture alone, we're going to be looking at various passages of scripture, uh, beginning this morning from Genesis chapter 3, moving into Genesis 17, into Deuteronomy 13, into Matthew 18, and then culminating with Revelation chapter 21, looking at a consistent theme this morning. So I want to read. Uh, begin by reading Revelation chapter 21, which is where we will end up in verses 22 and following. The Apostle John writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Would you pray with me? Father, you have worked a great salvation on behalf of sinners. The only thing that any of us have ever deserved is Your justice and wrath against our sin and rebellion. But out of the abundance of Your mercy and grace, God, You have worked out a plan since the very beginning of creation to send Your Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners. And Father, as You have worked out this plan and Christ has saved the people for Himself, You have called Your people Under the Old Covenant and under this New Covenant, we enjoy now to be a holy people. Because You are holy, we are to be holy. So Father, I pray that as we consider this great work You have done, and where it is all ending up at, the movement of history, moving towards a day when all of Your people will be dwelling in Your presence and there will only be holiness and joy and life and death will be no more. Father, help us to be witnesses to that day even now in how we conduct ourselves and in how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Father, help us to understand Your Word this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. As I said, this week is a third week a series on biblical church membership and discipline. And as I've said before, membership and discipline are two sides of the same coin. And that coin being the purity and the holiness of the church, the purity of the people of God. That is The two sides of the same coin. Historically, the purity of a local church is what has distinguished Baptist churches from all other churches, all other denominations. Baptists grew out of the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s and 1600s. And one of the core beliefs of the Reformation was the doctrine of sola scriptura. Sola meaning only or alone, scriptura obviously, scripture. So the doctrine of scripture alone. Protestants argued against their Roman Catholic counterparts that the Bible... Not councils, not creeds, not bishops, not popes, but the Bible alone was the final authority in all matters of faith and life. This is what all Protestants argued. This is what what sprung the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s. Well, early Baptists also believed. This doctrine. And as they applied it, as they began to look to scripture on all matters of faith and life, they began to come to some radically different conclusions from their Anglican and Congregational and Presbyterian brothers and sisters about what scripture taught about the nature of the church. Radically different. What distinguished Baptists from all others was not fundamentally their belief in the right mode of baptism by immersion. That is not what was fundamentally distinguishing them from others. It wasn't as well that they rejected infant baptism. And that they taught that only those who have made a credible profession of faith should be baptized. These beliefs were, were the products of something that was more fundamental. Namely, that a local church should be a pure people. And by this they meant that it should only be made up of those who are truly born again. Those who are truly regenerate. Those who are continually repenting Christians. That is what the church should be, and that is what they meant by a pure church. The church, they argued, is not a mixed community. It does not consist of both believers and unbelievers. It does not consist of believers and their unbelieving children. The church is made up exclusively of those who have experienced conversion. You have to understand, this is totally different from everything else that had been taught in previous generations. Most churches believed that the church is a mixed community. It is comprised of both believers and unbelievers. So you had some churches, like the Church of England, that was a state-sponsored church, the way they practiced membership was that if you were born in the dominion of the Church of England, if you were born in England, by virtue of your birth, you were a member of the Church, regardless of whether or not you actually believed in Christ. So you had your state-sponsored churches who included the citizenry among their number, and then he also had other churches who baptized their children because they believed that their children, by virtue of being part of covenant families, were also to be included as members of the church. Baptists rejected all of this. And they did so because as they studied the Bible, they were forced by what they saw, by its testimony to conclude that the local church was to be pure. That just as Jesus died for the church to make her holy and blameless before Him, so also is the church now to be pursuing this very end. And so the question naturally arose, how then Does the church maintain its purity? Well, Baptists argued by obeying the Bible and specifically by faithfully practicing the twin doctrines of regenerate church membership and church discipline. And as we've seen the last couple of weeks, local churches have the responsibility and authority to make sure that those whom it receives as members, as it practices church membership, those whom it receives as members are Christians. That is vital for the church to understand. The New Testament teaches us that those who were recognized in the early church as members of the early church were those who had experienced conversion. They believed in Jesus. They sought to follow Jesus. They believed in the gospel. They were repenting, they were repenting of their sin. They were turning away from idolatry. And they were living in obedience to Christ as they were taught. So as Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. The Thessalonians you, you may be familiar with in, in, in the first chapter, Paul describes their radical conversion. They were idolaters. And Paul comes to them preaching the gospel and he comes preaching in power, performing signs and wonders before them and many of them are radically converted in the midst of persecution. They are counting the costs. They are understanding that if we now identify ourselves as Christians, we will be persecuted. And yet they were continuing to believe Believe. And what we find the apostle Paul also telling them is that he also instructed them on how they are now to live in light of the gospel. So this is, this is what a believer is. Someone who not only believes in the gospel, but whose life is now a life of repentance and conformity to Christ. And so the church, even today, before it receives someone as a member, should make sure that he or she believes in Jesus and is repenting of sin. And this, Baptist argued, rightly, I would argue as well, this is how partly the purity of the church is cultivated and maintained. But the other side of the coin is through discipline which is simply the removing of someone from the church. Not physically, not dragging them out or anything physical by any means, but in the sense that the church no longer recognizes this person as a member. So the church has the authority to receive people as members. The church also has the authority and the requirement to remove those who are no longer walking in step with Christ. And the church must do this. The church must carry out this difficult task when a professing believer, a person who claims to follow Christ, is no longer walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, they are living in obvious, open sin. And in such a case, the church is commanded to remove this person from among them. Now, as, as for what this practice actually looks like, as it's carried out, we'll see next week in more detail as we look at Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. This morning, what I want to do is simply walk through the Bible and demonstrate the consistent testimony of Scripture that calls His people to be pure. Where God calls His people to be pure. And that this happens, this purity of the people of God happens in one of two ways. Either God's people, as a corporate body, separate themselves from sin. Or God separates them from Himself. Is the two ways that purity is maintained. Either the corporate body separates itself from sin, or God will separate himself from them. And I want to begin by looking at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 3 to see this consistent testimony carried out. Many of you are no doubt familiar with Genesis chapter 1 to 3. The creation of man, right? The fall of man into sin and corruption. Beginning in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And He fills the earth with every kind of creature and vegetation. And as the crown of His creation, He creates man and woman in the image of God. And He tells them, Everything is yours. You have dominion over the entire creation. He tells them, Be fruitful and multiply. Have children. Enjoy the world. It has been made for you to be image bearers of me in the world. But he gives us one simple exception. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. In other words, have it all. Everything is yours. The whole world is yours. This one tree, do not eat. I am testing you to see whether or not what is in your heart will be that which serves me or serves your own desires. And the command that he gives them, right? It's a prohibition. Don't partake of this. But the prohibition is for their life. It is for their good. If you partake of this, you will die. The curse will come upon you. Sin will enter into the world. If you obey my prohibition, you will live. And all of this will be yours. When we come to Genesis chapter 3, however, we find the first man and woman going the way that we all have gone ever since. They don't believe God. And they disobey God. They disobey His Word. In fact, we are told that when they looked at the fruit, they saw that it was desiring to their eyes. They desired the fruit more than they desired communion and fellowship with God. And so they partook and they ate and they disobeyed and they fell. And in that moment, sin entered into the world. God's creation God's holy place. The vast world that He had made not only for man's enjoyment, but as a place in which God and man would walk together. A place in which God and man would live together had now become stained with sin. Now friends, God is a holy God. And there is nothing impure In him. And therefore his people must be a holy people. This is a, this is a truth that we find all throughout scripture from beginning to end. A command to his people, be holy for I am holy. The problem was that Adam and Eve were no longer holy. They were now sinful and corrupt. And so what does God do? He removes the sin from His presence. He removes the sin from holy ground. Genesis chapter 3 verse 23 says that the Lord God sent man, Adam and Eve, sent man out from the garden of Eden. He removed them from His presence. And there was now a separation between God and man. Already you see the beginning, the, the, the requirement and the need for the people of God if they are to dwell in the presence of God to be holy and pure. Friends, the good news is that the story doesn't end there. It is not hopeless from that point on. In the midst of this judgment... God gives a promise. God gives the very first gospel that through Eve's future offspring, He would raise up a person to reverse the effects of sin and bring about salvation. Eve would have an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, no longer obeying the serpent, no longer obeying Satan, no longer obeying the flesh, but one who would come and would have victory over the serpent. When we come to Genesis chapter 12, we find God working out and fulfilling this very promise. He raises up Abraham and he calls Abraham out of Paganism, And he tells Abraham that the promised offspring and Savior is going to come through his family. The offspring that is going to bring about a multitude of nations to be blessed is going to come through his family. And he makes a covenant with Abraham, promising him that his family is going to be the unique people of God, promising him that out of all of the people of the earth, God is going to bless and He's going to care for Abraham's offspring because it is through them that the promised Messiah will come and the world will experience and see and know their Savior. In Genesis 17, God gives to Abraham the sign of this covenant. So the promises in Genesis 12, now he's going to give them a sign by which they know that Abraham's family is going to be a unique, distinct people through whom the Messiah comes. And that sign in Genesis 17 is the sign of circumcision. Every male child who is a descendant of Abraham is to be circumcised when they are eight days old. And this is how the people of God are going to be distinguished from the rest of of the world those who are circumcised are god's people they are clearly seen to be god's people those who are not circumcised are not recognized as god's people god also says in verse 14 of genesis 17 any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. So here, friends, we have we see that there is to be a very clear distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not. There is to be a separation. And the way that the distinction was made here was through the sign of circumcision. Those who receive it are God's people. Those who do not are cut off and are not recognized as His people. The same thing continues on as we move through the history of Israel and we come to the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, we find that God's people are not only distinguished from the world by circumcision, but they are distinguished from the world by their obedience to His commands. That His laws that they have given Him are more righteous than the laws of the nations, and the people are to be recognized by this obedience. So for example, the passage that we read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 13, there we find that God gives instructions for how His people are to deal with false prophets. False prophets are carrying the people of God away from God, into other ethics, other morals, other practices. And he says there that if a prophet arises, and perhaps even prophesies something that comes true, or even performs some sign or wonder, but he tells the people of Israel to worship another god, that prophet is false. I have not sent him, and he is not a part of my people. And God says there that you shall not listen to that prophet, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul of a prophet was discovered to be false verse 5 called for the death penalty verse 5 that prophet shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the lord And then notice how verse 5 ends. It ends by saying, So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now that's instructive. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. You find that actually said in about five different places in the book of Deuteronomy when it comes to dealing with things like idolatry, and false prophets. Purge the evil from among you. You see, friends, God's people were called to be holy, to be distinct and pure, distinct from the nations. They were not to engage in the idolatry and the false religions around them. They were not to embrace the customs of the other peoples. Because the customs of the other peoples included things like child sacrifice. Offering your children to a foreign deity that does not exist and that has simply been made by carving a wooden figurine and bowing before it burning children on behalf of false deities. No, God says, you are not to be like the surrounding nations. Cult prostitution was prevalent. Bestiality. People having relations with animals. Extortion. Murder. Man-stealing. All other kinds of evil. God's people were to be righteous and were to be different. And the promised land was to be a distinct place of truth, a unique place in the world, a place where God's presence was clearly known and clearly seen, a place friends very much like the garden of Eden. It was in a very real sense a new beginning, a restoration. In the midst of a fallen world, in the midst where sin is still prevalent, but a restoration in some measure of the Garden of Eden. A place where God and man dwelt together. And so sin and evil was to be purged from the land. Just as it happened in Eden when God cast out Adam from his presence and the death penalty Came upon him. Death entered the world. They were to be distinct, and the land was to be the place where God dwelled with man. Unfortunately, we all know too well that the history of Israel was not a history where they maintained this distinction. The history of Israel was one in which they mixed and they blended their worship, and they blended their beliefs in God with the beliefs of all other cultures. Worship of Baal, the worship of Asherah, the worship of Moloch, the worship of all the different deities, they blended together and the distinctions were not kept. And the history of Israel is the story of a people who compromised The story of a people who embraced the customs and gods of the world, and thus the story of a people who did not maintain their distinction. And so what we find happening all throughout the Old Testament is that we find Israelite kings worshiping other gods and sacrificing their children. We find civil war. We find adultery. We find murder and oppression and jealousy and everything that is contrary to the laws of God all throughout the history of Israel. And so what does God do? Since His people do not maintain this distinction, what does God do? God Himself purges the evil from the land. God Himself brings judgment upon the people. He judges His own people who are called by His name. He raises up other nations. He raises up the Assyrians. He raises up the Babylonians. And He uses them as His instruments of judgment. And He purges His people who are called by His name from the land. And He sends them into exile. Because there was no longer any difference between them and the rest of the people in the world. They were simply called, friends, to be faithful to the commandments of God and to be different. And because of that distinction being lost and all of the idolatry and all of the wicked practices that followed suit, God brought judgment upon them and purged the evil from the land. Friends, when we come to the New Testament... When we come to the New Testament, the standard has not changed. There are differences. There are differences between the Old and the New Covenant. But the standard of the people of God, that they are to be distinct and that they are to be pure and holy, that has not changed. Jesus Christ is building His church He died on the cross to ransom a people for Himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So a significant change has occurred in that God's people are no longer just Jewish. But they are Gentiles. They are you and me. I don't think we have any people who are ethnically Jewish here. They are Gentiles like us. That is a significant change. The people of God are no longer confined to the borders of Israel, but are now expanding throughout the entire world. God's people, the church, is a people made up of all nations. But the standard of holiness, and the standard of clearly being distinct from the world, the standard of not embracing sin. But repenting of it, knowing that it only leads to death, repenting of it, knowing that the path that Christ has set forth for us is the path that brings life. The standard of obedience and love for God and not obedience to sin and love for it is still the same. The church, friends, is to be a witness to what has been and to what is to come. And what is to come is a new heavens and a new earth. What is to come is a resurrection. And in the resurrection and in the recreation of all things, there will be no sin in the world. The entire cosmos will be a place of purity and holiness and everlasting joy. There will be no weeping. There will be no death. There will be no wars. Sin will be no more. And all people on the earth will be blameless. They will be innocent. They will be holy and pure and will forever again dwell in the presence of the Almighty. And so how does the church then bear witness to this future? How does it already begin to demonstrate that this is what is to come? Well, one of the ways, one of the ways, friends, is by making and maintaining the clear distinction between who God's people are and who God's people are not. By pursuing together as a corporate body the purity of the local church by only recognizing as God's people those who trust in Christ and repent of sin, the practice of church membership, receiving those who have experienced regeneration, those who have received the Holy Spirit, and by removing those who no longer repent of sin, but have instead embraced it and embraced the customs of the world which is what church discipline does. The purging, if you will, of the evil. And this is what Jesus commands the church to do, in fact, in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 15 to 18. We will look at this passage a little more, as I said, next week in more detail, but allow me simply to make one point now. In this passage... Jesus is describing a situation where one believer has sinned against another. And a process is to be carried out that is aimed at leading that sinning brother to repentance and to restoration. The brother needs to be shown his fault. And if there is obvious sin in a professing believer's life, maybe it's abusiveness towards a spouse. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's some form of sexual immorality, adultery, leaving one man or one woman, leaving their family for another and breaking that covenant made for life. If a professing believer is engaged in this kind of behavior and claims to be a disciple of Christ, is bearing witness to the world that he or she is a Christian, it is necessary. And friends, indeed, it is the most loving thing you can do to show that person their fault. To go to them and to plead with them. This is the damage you are causing. Can't you see? That is love. That is what we do with our children. We don't allow them to continue to go the way of wickedness. We have to correct them. That's, that's love. That is training. That is, that is a demonstration of love. To go to a brother to show him his fault. But friends, the reality is, the reality is, is that sometimes even within a church, a professing believer will refuse to take counsel. A professing believer, even if the sin is clearly known, will refuse to repent. And in such a case, Jesus says in verse 17 that the matter is to be brought to the church. The church being the final counsel, if you will. And he says there in verse 17 that if the person refuses to listen, even to the church, if the entire assembled body is now calling this person to flee what is killing them and what is harming others in the same moment, he says, let that person be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile And a tax collector. Now, Jesus here is speaking to Jewish disciples. Jewish disciples. And at that time, Jews understood Gentiles and tax collectors by definition to be sinners who were not part of the covenant people of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that if a situation arises in the church where a professing believer bearing my name is embracing their sin and no longer walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, then the church can no longer recognize that person as a covenant member of the people of God. That's what he means by consider them as a Gentile or a tax collector. They are now to be recognized as outside of the covenant of God. We see this not only in Jesus, but in Paul as well in 1 Corinthians 5, a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago where he's teaching the very same thing. There was a man in the church at Corinth in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul calls the church to assemble together and to remove that man claiming to be a believer from them. And in fact, in order to ground this practice of church discipline in scripture, Paul quotes at the very end of that chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 5, as a justification. The passage we read earlier dealing with false prophets, he quotes there, purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. So the principle is still the same. God's people are to be distinct. The application has changed because now the ultimate judgment, the death penalty, if you will, has been fully and completely left in the hands of God on the day of judgment or for the day of judgment. So what do the people of God do now? What does the church do now in purging the evil person from among you? They must remove him. They must no longer recognize him or her as a covenant member of the people of God. God's people are to be distinct. It's very clear. They are to be different. And the difference is found not in what they do with their Sundays. That's a slight difference. The difference is found in their zeal and in their pursuit of purity And holiness. And the church should have a desire to pursue this distinct calling, this distinct purity because of what they are by nature. Because of what the church is, friends, by nature. Well, what is the church? There's several different images that the church is given throughout the New Testament, but one in particular that is very relevant is that the church is the new temple of God. The church is the temple that God is building. The church members are individual stones of this new building. Paul calls the church in Ephesians 2 a holy temple in the Lord and a dwelling place for God. And so if God is going to dwell among His people, As His temple, the temple must be holy. The temple grounds must be holy. They must be distinct from the world. And in so doing, they bear witness to what is to come. They bear witness to a day when in the presence of God and among the people of God, there will be nothing unclean. Nothing unclean will enter the temple of God, nothing sinful, nothing evil, only what is pure, only what is holy, and only what makes for the everlasting joy and peace for God's people and the world. And the Apostle John tells us about this very day in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 27, the passage that we read in the very beginning Where he says there again, let me read it for you again, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And I might add, the people who are united to the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Friends, from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning until the very end in Revelation, God desires for His people to be pure, to be holy. And the church is no exception. She is to be distinct from the world because God, her Savior, is holy and distinct from the world. She is to begin already pursuing this very end that we find in Revelation. She is to already be an embassy, if you will, of the Kingdom of God to come. Telling the world, this is what the standards are in the Kingdom of God. This is what my King, when He returns, will bring in. A place where there is nothing unclean. A place where there is no death. This is what we bear witness to in the local church. In everything we do, and in everything we believe, and in everything we say. So brothers and sisters, as we consider together what the church is, and what she is called to do, let's not simply rest in the traditions that we may be familiar with from the last few generations. Let us look at those who have gone far before us, Let us look at our Baptist forefathers who made it their sole aim to exalt the Bible as their final authority. Not the popes, not the creeds, not the traditions, but everything was brought under subservience to the Word of God. Let us be as the Bereans were in the book of Acts who studied the Scriptures to know if these things are So, and friends, I assure you that if we dedicate ourselves to the Bible and to what God has revealed there, there is only found there a path to what true joy is. Not superficial joy, not surface level joy, but deep spiritual joy with the anticipation of the hope of the resurrection and a renewed creation to come. Let us look to our Baptist forefathers and do the very same things that they did. Go to the Word and obey it and enjoy it. Would you pray with me now?